through this episode of It Was All Worth It, a podcast that talks about the things that people are passionate about and build their lives around. My name's still Eamon Dillon. On the first episode, I was talking about Ulster Unionism and the Irish language, so now it's time to talk about something completely different. On this episode, I talked to Paul McCormick and Manuel Salazar, who are members of the Dublin branch of Extinction Rebellion. Even if you don't know what XOR is, you could probably take a guess just from the name. It's a now worldwide group of activists which is dedicated to calling more vocally that governments around the world act on climate change through the use of civil disobedience. I did this interview back at the end of 2019 and during the interview it's actually commented on how quickly that XOR has spread. It only started in Britain about a year before that and by that time there were already branches all over America, Australia and Europe. The first group in England had gotten attention for blocking five bridges across the Thames the year before and shortly before I met them Paul and Manuel had been part of a group in Dublin where members had chained themselves to the gates of the Dáil. Now obviously being a protester isn't a job and the cause of protecting the environment isn't exactly the same kind of burning passion per se as an artist who like is really consumed with his art and needs to spend all day creating but it's obviously something both these guys Paul and Manuel felt so strongly about that they couldn't just sit by and let it go and they have just had to make a central part of their lives. So that's why I wanted to speak to them about why it was exactly that this cause, as important as it is, but why it spoke to them so personally. This interview was also done way back in 2019, but obviously the environment is not an issue that's going to stop being relevant anytime soon. So welcome. I'm here with Paul and Manuel, who are members of the Dublin branch of the Extinction Rebellion organization. So Paul, Manuel, welcome. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us, Eamon. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Most welcome. So I start off for both of you. When did you get an understanding of what environmental issues are? Now, if that's a sounds like a strange question, what I mean is, was there a moment when in your life you began to understand that the world we live in is not invulnerable? For me, it was, I suppose you grow up and you you're kind of aware that you know bad things happen to nature and you know you you kind of see those images of trees being cut down and stuff and deforestation but i i never really gave any deep thought to what that actually meant it seemed always seemed like these things were happening in places far away and mm-hmm. you know things will be okay if they get bad enough like someone will do something about it i, I like as a child i suppose i always grew up with the idea that you know someone was looking after it somewhere even if it was bad for a little while, the cops or whoever, would, the goodies would, would would rush in and save us all. But then I lived most of my adult life or a good chunk of it. And then in 2006, I moved to Sydney, Australia, and I arrived just after New Year's where they had had the record-breaking summer. And I think it had gone 42, 43 degrees. And like everyone was talking about just how hot it was. But then that year was when um, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth came out. And I saw that in the cinema over there. And that was the first time I was like, Jesus Christ, this is, this is shockingly bad. But I thought, well, now I have to pay attention to this. I think I believed at the time, well, you know, this is a big movie. Al Gore is a very high profile guy. This is going to get out there and we're going to do something about it. But then... That didn't happen. Yeah, I suppose for me, more or less Paul, I got a greater view of what is happening around the world when I started traveling. Uh, I grew up in South America, in the Global South, in Venezuela specifically, and it's an oil state. And then uh, nature is uh, very much under pressure there when you have uh, oil pumping and burning, you know, all over the, the place. So I started traveling around the world and I noticed that also 
a lot of people in India, for example, uh, wouldn't be so environmentally friendly. And then just start questioning yourself, oh, Jesus Christ, if that's happened in India, but here in Venezuela, and, and also in Europe, where I was living at, at, the, at the time, our earth is under pressure. And uh, at some point, we, we won't control what, what is happening. It's, it's, it's just too much what is happening. Population growth, uh, you know, resources are getting limited for all of us as well. And, you know, food, the food chain and so on. So there was a moment uh, when the inconvenient truth, you know, movie as well, you know, trigger me uh, and, and give me a, a picture of what is happening uh, around the world. And then, uh, yeah, I decided to to do something about it, you know? Although for myself, I'm a person who I like spending time in nature and I know that it's, it's good for me to feel better when I've been in it. I wouldn't see myself as one of those people who has like a spiritual attachment to nature or who craves the solitude of nature and all that. But how about for you two? Do either of you feel like you're people who feel a really strong connection to nature? If, say, there was an ideal world and the world was invulnerable, it was bulletproof and nothing we could do but damage the ecosystem. Do you think you'd, you'd be people who'd want to spend your time with, with nature or in nature or are you doing this because essentially out of necessity for the survival of the species? Uh, for, for me, like I, I wouldn't have necessarily described myself as a nature person. I grew up in the city, but like my, my parents were, were from farms in Cavan and Leitrim. And um, every summer we would go down there and kind of just muck about my grandparents' farms. But I, I, I would have always kind of thought myself of as a bit more urban in my heart. But like, do, you, do you ever play that game where it's mm or mm? Where someone says Batman or Superman, and you have to choose which one you you prefer, and then yeah. it's, and then <laughs> like I remember it just popped into my head. But um, I remember we would do like mm, or in, like forest or beach, um, city or forest, and forest was always I think my my answer. It's like where I would where I enjoy living in the city when I think of a peaceful beautiful place to live there would be kind of forest mountainous kind of areas. So I think that's 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 in there somewhere. I've spent more time in kind of urban settings. Yeah, for me, it was a, a mix between, you know, the city and also uh, the coast of the beach and, and also mountains and so on. It was a mix of all of that. Um, I suppose in South America, we have the, a, a great connection with nature. So it's all, all over the place and there are a lot of animals and you, you notice that something's going on around you, um, a part of the, you know, human life and urban. So when you see around the world, is that beauty is under pressure. You, you got the anxiety of doing something. For me, it would be, I'm not really a spiritual in many ways, but I think I got involved because I saw a threat to something that I love. Mm -hmm, yeah. And that love is not really spiritual. It's just, it's something that we really need as it's human. A hu humanist approach. Yeah, exactly. We are part of that chain. Okay. And then the chain is, is, is in the threat. So you need to do something about it. So it's, it's, it's a mix of both, you know, it's a part of me and also, uh, the urgency to do something. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. It. But it's not its not only just the house on fire, it's that you love your house. Hmm. I have two young kids as well. I have yeah. a, a nine-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. Every chance we get, we're kind of trying to get out. And some of the best weekends that we've kind of had would be like out in nature, kind of, you know, walking through forests or something. I think now that I'm so much more aware of the threat that it's all under, I feel much more of a connection to nature and kind of like... I suppose it's like that, you know, you don't, you don't know what you have till it's gone. I hadn't been paying attention kind of to until I realized how, how much like of a threat it's actually um, in. But that's essentially the key question, although that's for later on in the interview, I'll build up to that. For both of you, how did you go from being interested in the subject, I don't know if interested is the word, but being aware or paying attention to the subject to deciding you had to be involved I've been somehow linked to, to, to politics. So I was part of the Green Party. And then uh, being in a 
in a party where green issues are the main issues. So you get aware of a lot of things. Definitely party wasn't the place for me. I consider myself more a person of action. So then... Um, Too much talking, sitting around. <laughs> yeah, around yeah, yeah, exactly. Policies and, and so on. And very, that's very important as well. But when with the system that you try to somehow shape is not shaping, you know, for many reasons, and selfish reasons. So uh, you have to take another route. And I got involved in Extinction Rebellion a few months ago for that reason. It's a group of action. It's a group of non-violent, you know, actions that can make the differences. And as you probably see or have seen in, in the few months, uh, it's just great. I've been to a few of the events around the doll and um, I understand the frustration you would feel with a group who, who sat around indefinitely talking about an issue when time is pressing, you know. Mm. So anybody who's willing to act in any capacity, be it at the moment perhaps mainly just about raising awareness is still pretty crucial, I suppose, you know. I, I'm, I think I'm, for a long time I was that classic person that we're trying to wake up at the moment. I used to just sit at home and, you know, devour box sets and play PlayStation and, and things. But like I'd read, I'd kind of read news and I would see news stories kind of popping up and read more and more. Like like since An Inconvenient Truth came out, I, I did pay attention to kind of like, you know, what, what was going on much more acutely. And uh, and then it was the IPCC's report um, last October, which said we had 12 years, you know, left to turn this thing around. A frighteningly real number. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's even more frightening when you kind of get into the thick of it and you realize that like that's a we have a 50-50 chance even within that time frame and then kind of everything else as more information comes out that suggests it's, it's even less than that but at that time I was like my daughter was eight my my son was five so I'm, I'm looking at like she's going to be 20 he's going to be 17 and like they're not going to have any opportunity to actually do anything about this I absolutely think by like by, by that point we're starting to see how bad things are going now at that point i mean no denying it they're very young now they understand kind of because daddy's so involved and all this kind of stuff that they they understand that the world is in trouble like i don't go into too much detail with them yet but at that point they're they're, it's you know when when they become more aware of it and they can kind of intellectually engage with it and and to a degree i'm I'm sure they're going to say like you know what did you do what were you doing when this became apparent that this is what was going to happen? Why is our life going to be so much different than yours? And it's like, I need to be able to look them in the eyes and say, I try to do something. And that report was, I, got, I remember like I think the weekend after I read it, I was like sort of storming around the house, like, what am I going to do? And, and looking at the news and seeing that it wasn't being reported, that it wasn't on the news. It wasn't like, well, everybody wake up we've got 12 years what are we going to do it's just like let's just pretend that that didn't happen that nobody said anything about that and we'll just move on past it then i kind of came across a training for to be good a cool planet champion training which is part of and um, this cool planet experience in powers court climate change museum and they were doing a two-day training on getting people out to go to businesses and community groups and stuff and, and give a, a presentation about you know how much shit we're in and that was my first sort of dip my toe in the water into doing something. And then that eventually led to Extinction Rebellion because really the I didn't feel that the Cool Planet stuff was moving as fast as I wanted it to. It's an extension of it and Cool Planet. Yeah. Is that aimed at children with a name like that? It sounds like it. It's, it's, it's cross, yeah. It's like it's, it's a, you, you go in, you get a little band, you measure your carbon footprint and then you walk around from exhibit to exhibit. And it's really interactive, but it's, it's definitely aimed at kind of in- engaging kids, yeah. but it's just as much fun for adults. And, and I'm sure loads of adults will go in and go, oh God, yeah, this is kind of some of the stuff that I can actually do. It's, it's, it's very informative. Maybe that's a positive way of looking at it, but based on what you're saying and the 
the frustration you just described yourself stewing in. I know it's I know it's anger as well, but it has that feeling of frustration. At that time, you couldn't feel how you could release it or what you mm-hmm. do with it. The difference in terms of the name from Cool Planet to Extinction Rebellion yeah. sums up the difference in urgency of the two groups. You know, yeah. I I hadn't I hadn't planned to ask this question, but I really must with your kids. Like, they're only just starting to put together their their view of how the world works, their yeah. structure of the world. How can they process this at all? I don't think that any parent has an easy answer for that question. How I and I, I suppose it's very personal on on how you respond to it or how you prepare them for the idea of the world that I have in my head and and like and, and you wonder kind of can I prepare them for it um, is it even, is that even possible how do I best prepare them for it and like at, at this stage they're still very young my daughter gets it a bit more I got it like she she made a little card just impromptu last week it was like um, hi daddy thank you for all the stuff you're doing with Extinction Rebellion thank you for trying to save the world well, I was putting her to bed there recently as well and I was giving her a kiss goodnight and she said like daddy what's the world going to be like when I grow up and I was like I don't know um, I said it, it's like it's going to be different and she said like well what kind of different I said well there's going to be probably going to be more storms it's going to be it'll be harder to grow food in some places so there's kind of going to be lots of people having to leave their countries like I kind of went brushed over some of these things and she was like I don't want it to be different I want to travel the world and I want to see different places and I was like well look you know we're we're, we're trying to fight as much as we can to to try and save the place so like that's what daddy's doing he's trying to he's trying to save it so she gets it my young fellow finn he's still very young he, he does kind of ask a few questions but like it's, i suppose it's drip feeding them you sort of just drip feed them when you try and kind of give it to them at a level that you think they're prepared for my daughter maybe is prepared is, is more prepared but I, i'm not going to give her any sort of scary stuff but i i do want to start teaching them how to grow food we put up a uh, uh, raised bed in our backyard. I need to teach myself how to grow food first. I've got them both doing martial arts. Um, I did judo for years and I've got them in judo classes. And Why are you teaching them judo? You know, self-defense, I think, is potentially something that they might need to have. Really? It's potentially a, a useful skill to have. But in relation to this? In relation to, like, there's a strong potential that the place is going to go to hell in the handbasket. That's why I was asking. I was afraid you were going to say that. I was yeah. surprised. So it's, um, I did do martial arts for years, and it's, 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 it also teaches you a lot of patience and self-control and this kind of stuff as well. No, so they're I, good, they're I, I, good I understood values. that it has a lot of benefits in and of itself. I just was genuinely concerned because I was like, he can't mean that, can he, in relation to this? But I kind of knew that's what you meant. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking Mad Max type stuff here. Yeah, depending on which model you're looking at, mm-hmm. and I don't—I'm not a climate scientist, but the ones that of worst-case scenarios, we're seeing events now that are online with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's information now coming about the next IPCC report that they're saying the climate sensitivity that they were kind of working with in the past is much worse than than it was beforehand so it's like climate is much more sensitive to the carbon that's up there and that means that all of the temperature sort of models that we've been talking about like we've been talking about potentially four degrees by the end of the century now that puts it more kind of seven degrees by the end of the century so four degrees then comes a lot closer in time and the, the the amount of time that we have to do things becomes a lot closer so there are scenarios that martial arts just won't even be any use you do what you can. So Extinction Rebellion is a, it's an international organization, right? So what is its manifesto? 
uh, well, we basically, we are a non-violent organization and decentralized. So we base our, let's say, behavior based on 10 principles and values. When someone follows that 10 principles of values, you can call XR yourself. So, but, and also we have three demands, yeah. which is tell the truth, act now, and just transition. And, and I suppose the organization, where, what it tries to do is just to highlight and tackle you know, climate change, uh, put uh, governments uh, accountable uh, for their actions and address climate change and corporations as well. You know, there's uh, certain parts of the economy that definitely needs to be shut down or, you know, Great transition. Great yeah, exactly. Or transition, you know, into a, a renewable. Yeah. Forms, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and that's what we're trying to do. But it's a very recent work like the last only two years it was founded, am I right? Thinking who founded it and where and when exactly? There was a group called Rise Up, I think it was yeah, pre- yeah. previously and before XR. And there was uh, about five I think there were five or six members in, in Rise Up in the UK and then they kind of had a meeting and got together and sort of said, Right, this is what we're we're going to start working on. Yeah, it started all in the UK, basically. They they create this uh, suppose this model in, in no violence and there's a study there where it says that non-violence uh, um, movements uh, will have more success than, than the violent ones. And there are examples like the Luther Mother King, you know, or Mahatma Gandhi, you know, then show us that examples. And uh, it was in October 2018 that they started, or... April? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was April. I think. Yeah, April. And then they had the first big action in October, wasn't it? The, yeah. the, the bridges. Yeah, that was um, the first uh, rebellion week for them. So then around thousand people, if I'm not yeah. right, uh, wrong, sorry, um, uh, attended. Um, so it's when the first they, arrests came. They blocked the traffic on the bridges. Uh, yeah. yeah, they, they took uh, uh, five bridges. I think. Five bridges. Yeah. Uh, they took them. So over the week, you know, um, things escalated. They realized that they couldn't uh, hold some of the bridges, so they started moving from one bridge to another one. And yeah, it was a kind of success by the time, you know, they, they become very much in the, in the public eye. Very fast. Like I, I, very fast, yeah. Someone said to me at one of the meetings that it was, they said it's about, about two years old, and I thought, well, maybe that's only when this person became aware of it, because it seemed to have grown so fast, I thought maybe it had been around longer, but like that's, I'd say for a group like this, phenomenal growth in a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. many branches does it have worldwide? Any idea? God, I don't know. I forget. I've seen the number. Over 50, I'd say, certainly. Yeah, 50 um, countries. Yeah, 50 countries. 50 countries, yeah. yeah. And it's growing, you know. Why is this growing so fast when other organizations might have failed? Because, I mean, people have been at least vaguely aware. And even if you look at popular culture, if you look at movies and, and, and TV and stuff that would not be geared towards anything as difficult as this, often touches on it. Like I've seen even in stuff like superhero movies, they touch on this because everyone is aware of it to a certain degree. Mm. You know, no, nobody has not heard of this. So why do you think this one now, after a couple of decades, seems to be growing faster than the other groups? I, I think the IPCC report probably was a kick up the arse for a lot okay. of people. And then I think XR's actions sort of match the the threat and the level of urgency that's kind of required. So I think like for me, like I did the um, Cool Planet stuff and then I, I went into X, I went to launch my first XR meeting in February of, of this year. And I went in kind of a bit cautiously thinking these are the guys who get arrested, you know, mm-hmm. what's going, what's the story with that? Yeah, and, yeah, I didn't really know what to kind of expect. But I think a big part of the attraction is like once you're in it, there's no leaders. So if anyone joins kind of like next week, they have just as much say as I have within the within the group. So they they have a voice. I can't tell them that they can't do something. 
as long as it's within the, the principles they're, they're the kind of thing that bind us all together and then there's like that sort of community aspect to it and kind of one of the aims is to build the support to three and a half percent of the population which is based okay. on uh, erica chenoworth is a harvard um, professor who did this research and said that kind of if a movement can get to three and a half percent then they have a much better opportunity of actually attaining their goals if they do it in a non-violent way it's it's very focused i mean the fact that you have that's almost in a bit kind of a business model that you have numbers that specific yeah it's really yeah progressive way to yeah. approach to it it's like one hundred and seventy-six thousand people in ireland hopefully we'll get get everybody but that's kind of one of the aims so to do that we have to be open to everybody the principles are we accept everyone and everyone and we don't blame and shame so it's like there's a recognition that everyone's part of this toxic system that we've all been kind of living with for a long time and that's kind of I suppose eating away at us and polluting us in a way and like the sort of neoliberal capitalism is sort of a classic example of it but like even if say a CEO of an oil company who's decided holy shit Everything I've been doing for the past number of decades has actually contributed massively to this. If he decides I'm going to join Extinction Rebellion, we have to have a space that kind of allows him to kind of come in as long as he suppose he renounces the yeah. fossil fuel kind of stuff. Sounds but very Christian. Yeah, but it's, it's like it's um like But yeah, you don't name and shame, you don't blame, yeah. you want yeah. everybody to, to be included. Yeah, and that's how yeah. it work instead of with a lot of okay, I'm not perhaps the right term, but like left-wing movements or liberal movements or progressive movements, often that's part of the reason they fail is because people are excluded. They, we don't want this group joining us. And the fact that you're trying to be inclusive like that is actually very smart and progressive way of going. Yeah, about and uh, we also have, uh, you know, goals. Uh, yeah. You know, these numbers help people yes. to understand, uh, you know, that there's a way to reach that goal. It seems and achievable. It seems achievable when uh, sometimes you join organizations and the, the problem is so huge mm-hmm. that you don't know where to start, how to do it, uh, what skills you have and so on. And Extinction Rebellion, there's already uh, a structure that is uh, simple to understand. This is one of the reasons I've been successful. And sometimes I, I do explain to Extinction Rebellion, we are like a Greenpeace, but with people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we are uh, able to bring people along with us. In the case of Greenpeace, they may do actions where some people agree, disagree, yeah. but they disappear for a while. We are a family. Our actions are colorful. Are, you know, the messaging is very clear. Uh, you see families, you know, uh, in the case of, you know, Paul and his kids, you know, are, are involved in, in Extinction Rebellion. And that all is uh, very appealing for people. And because we are non-violent as well, so it makes sense and we are credible, you know, if you compare us to other organizations. Yeah. Like the part of, I think, movements in the past as well that have been violent is they tend to be exclusively populated by young men. It's only young men that really have a place sometimes to participate in those movements. So by being nonviolent, we allow people from like all ages, all backgrounds, kind of like uh, men and women to feel safe within the actual group and, and come in. And like even just um, the past couple of days, we have a 78-year-old uh, grandmother of two who's been um, fasting in front of the doll. There's a space for her to actually be there and to exercise her voice and really powerful what kind of events have you been involved with so far with events demonstrations events whatever term you want to use and i mean events maybe is a good term because as well as demonstrating there's been things like concerts and stuff like that 
What kind of events have you two personally been involved with? <laughs> we've, we've been involved in, in, I think, most of the big kind of Irish events. My first one was the Funeral for Humanity, where we carried a coffin from uh, O'Connell Street to Graff Street. And then there was the kind of Rebellion Week day that we had. We weren't kind of big enough to do a week. But um, I was glued to this fella. Um, <laughs> That's uh, right. Yeah, we have our honest story. <laughs> yeah. Our love story. Yeah. Of- I don't know if you mean that literally or not. I've seen people change the railings and stuff, so... Literally, yeah. yeah, literally glued to this fella. He's my uh, hermano pegamento, my, my glue brother. Yeah, glue brother, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like when I got involved, uh, that, that was one of the first actions. So we disrupted uh, a conference at the Botanic Gardens. Yeah. Uh, so the minister was there at uh, Great Britain. And then we decided to jump on the on the stage, basically, with a big banner. And then uh, our affinity group or group of action mm-hmm. so uh, gave a speech and disrupted the conference. Afterwards, we have a bit of a theatrical you know, representation about... Uh, how our trees are getting cut, the killing of our trees, uh, native trees. And then uh, the same day, the afternoon, so they, we glue ourselves uh, from uh, to, to the Department of, of Climate Action. And then, uh, yeah, Paul and myself, we were uh, glued to, to the main door together with our, another three rebels. These kind of actions are the kind of things that you said even yourself would be very sympathetic to this, incredibly sympathetic to this. You were a bit wary of that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. What kind of opposition have you been coming up against so far? How has the reaction been amongst both normal people and how has the reaction been amongst, let's say, the authorities, the government or the, the law enforcement? I've had uh, just really good reactions kind of for the most part. The authorities probably don't like us, and but they've been very kind of um, standoffish like in terms even-handed. of the guards. Yeah, even-handed, yeah. Up to now anyway, that could change in the future. Like when we glued ourselves to the department, it's actually quite close to where I work. And I was thinking, oh, I just hope nobody from work walks past. And then the, the CEO of my company walked past and immediately saw me and was like, oh, good man, Paul. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it was like, it was kind of a surprise to me. But like, because I had given the presentation in the office and he had actually been attended that. He's kids himself and he knows kind of what's going on. I think a lot of people are... They're stuck in situations where they're like, I don't know how to get involved. I don't know how yeah. to do something myself. So when they see other people doing it, they're kind of like, I'm glad they're there. Like you said earlier, mm-hmm. the thought that someone out there is trying to do something yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. Albeit it's not the authorities, it's the opposite. Yeah. That's right. So people change their perceptions when they see these kind of uh, actions. Yeah. And, uh, since you remain nonviolent as well, it's kind of credible. And then actually, you're seeing people, I don't know if you're seeing it yourself, but you're seeing people's faces. I kind of want to do something as well, yeah. Uh, yeah. but I'm not ready just yet to do it yeah so and then uh, they would say okay this is your kind of thing maybe it's not mine but at the same time i know i can do something but the support is there it's maybe maybe ourselves also we have to be more clear about how can people you know participate more well like we've grown yeah. we've grown so fast like like again back in february i think i sat in a room with maybe 40 50 people planning that the funeral for humanity action mm. and then there was kind of like we would have zoom calls that you have about maybe 10 people in the call but there was typically the same sort of 10 people for a long time yeah yeah there were the 10 people sort of organizing things and then kind of there'd be an, another 10 20 people or something who would maybe not be on the calls but would be kind of helping and bringing everything together and then kind of that went from like now we have we have hundreds of people and now we're at the point like we're in terms of where we would be involved in almost every action through yeah. the summer now there's actions that happen i i don't even know that there is anything planned mm-hmm. but because we've grown so fast one of the challenges at the moment is 
is actually learning how to be a bigger group and how to handle the sort of numbers and help people then find space because you tend to get so caught up in the things that you've been doing so far that some people might be outside saying I want to get in I want to get in I want to help and you're missing the opportunity to actually stop and say okay let me show you how to do it um, mm. or let me help you or make it easier for you to do it so that's kind of we I think we're starting to tackle those issues now like it's an important part of the next stage I think of, of Extinction Rebellion yeah and since then we have grown massively so we have a kind of a structure you know we create small groups and those groups have a, um, a first action and then when that action happens so they bounce together and then to, it's easier afterwards you know to coordinate actions with them yeah. and on that um, in terms of, of actions it's, it's more related to what you said about ordinary people and them wanting to get involved even outside of the group how do you both of you apply what you believe in to your everyday lives I'll just take a simple example are, are both of you and most of the members of the group vegetarians for example I, d- I don't think everyone's a vegetarian. I think um, some people are still kind of meat eaters. I think that everyone's on a journey with that kind of stuff. At home, we first cut back to chicken one day a week. My wife had been vegetarian and then she kind of went back to meat when she had the kids. So I used to eat meat when we were dating and stuff, but like only when we were out because if she was making dinner or something, it'd just be vegetarian. It was, that was fine. But we cut back to chicken once a week and then I bought her like this cookbook, Bosch, which said all vegetable cookbook on the front. And it's, it was a vegan cookbook. Like once I was started cooking something, I was like, use non-dairy milk, non-dairy. And I was like, if it had said vegan on the cover at the time, I probably wouldn't have bought it. Because vegan for me, I think at the moment, at that point was like... Too extreme. Yeah, it's like I didn't didn't really know what it was. I was like, I thought like this is stuff that's going to be hard to get. And I'm going to have to go out of my way. And it's kind of like, in a, it's sort of fake food or something like, because my experience of it might have been the sort of replacement hams and meats and things. And it's like, I was I was thinking more in that space than I was thinking, um, oh, it's just vegetables. Yeah. And the, like, I've never had a book that I've enjoyed cooking stuff more from. Like things that like, as a meat eater, like I'd still class myself as a meat eater because I'd still occasionally eat it. But like now we just don't eat it at home. It's and, just part of your routine. You don't even think about it yeah. anymore. And I think that's, that's when I say the journey, I think there's kind of like, you just have to sort of chip away at, mm. let's try and cut back, let's remove this thing from our life and see if we can do that or see if we can have a replacement. So like we try and, you know, avoid things with palm oil and stuff in it and we try and kind of like reduce the kind of plastic waste. We're trying to get everything as reusable as we can. But it's like, it that's easier for some people. Some people, that's just not an option because some of that stuff is expensive yeah. and they can't afford it. Everyone's on their own kind of journey and everyone within XR, there'll be people of different stages along the way yeah there are people more extreme yeah I, I suppose in, in my case um, you know like Paul I've been uh, leaving the values as much as I can for mm-hmm. example so then to obviously eat less meat uh, is a good thing so I've been reducing it as well but I think then I, I would reflect more my approach and to bring awareness to the people I know around me mm-hmm. so there I, I work for a big corporation and then to, uh, there's a lot of people in that corporation 3,000 people mm-hmm. so I talk to people about climate change and that also changed myself because I feel I kind of advocate to to be a kind of role model being part of Extinction Rebellion and, and that's what I love to, to do but then the change comes along you know yourself being, trying to also bring awareness also people will see okay but you're wearing this or you are doing that so nobody's perfect but at the same time just start correcting yourself you know, to, to go more into, into that lines Are the problems that are being created I know they have been created for a long time but that are continuing to be created for the environment are they mostly due to the collective actions of ordinary people like the decisions of us to continue to meat or to use palm oil if we need to or 
the simple things like driving a car. Is it more the collective actions of ordinary people together or is more of that problem based on the actions of big business corporations and governments? In terms of, like, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say blame. Well, you know, like... They're, they're, that, that's true. Yeah, your organization doesn't use the model blame. I, I, I'm using that having come into this before the interview, not knowing that that's a good... There, there are definitely, there are, like in, in saying that, there are definitely people that you kind of point the finger at, like kind of, you know, just trying to remain constructive. Yes. If you were to sit, kind of frame it in like, you know, how much can people do versus how much can corporations do that's and how much can business can yeah. do, do that. I think it's very important that people do as much as they can because there is a market at the moment. So right now we're within this kind of market that is a serious problem. So like I've tried not to fly. I'm trying to make those changes like to my diet and stuff, which are two big polluters. But it is the government will always try and frame it as oh no, people need to make better choices. And people can't make better choices very often because there aren't alternatives. And we're kind of trapped in this system. And and the system as well, the people who are kind of selling that to us are, they're working against the alternatives because ultimately it's going to hit them in the pocket. So it's 70 companies are mostly responsible for carbon emissions in our atmosphere. So we need to get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible we need to like when Fine Gael, for example or this government are trying to or considering the liquid natural gas terminal in Shannon and they're going to import fracked gas from the US which it leaks all along the process where they pull it out of the ground in Pennsylvania it destroys communities there pollutes the groundwater that people will can physically light their taps on fire like when they turn the tap on and then they ship it they're going to ship it across to us stick it into this terminal that they're then going to ship sell to us and sell to the rest of Europe that thing leaks gas that is a hundred times more potent they're trapping the sun's heat and warming the planet than regular carbon dioxide. So when we know we have to get reduce our emissions and their government are trying to approve projects like that, then you can see their intention and you can see who they're listening to and you can see those changes. If we all went zero waste, zero carbon as individuals, it will be tiny in comparison to what that liquid natural gas terminal will do. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I didn't realize that. So everybody in the world changed that it's still or in this, if we, in this country. I'm talking in this country in the world yeah. levels, it would, that would be massive, it would be significant. But um, yeah. like obviously part of that is, you know, if, if everyone was, was to switch to clean fuel, for example, then you're going to kill the yeah. oil and gas industry from that but there are no options so yeah. it's like uh, lifestyle choices can't can't do it so. yeah re- renewables you know could be an option but uh, still the money hasn't been you know invested in renewables as well i suppose individual choices would have been a huge huge impact 20 years ago now we need a system change okay. a complete uh, reform of the structure that we have and how companies practices are, are at the moment so yeah, it's that. I mean, we need to tackle that from, from the top. And, and of course, the efforts that we do individually are important. But if we do it from the top, it's going to be faster. Do you think that the, the movement can actually, or any movement, can bring about those system changes? I have to believe it. I have to. That's how I keep putting one foot in front of the other every day. Like I have to believe it and I have to try. Whether it will play out in the end that we can, I don't know. But I'm encouraged massively by the effect that it has had in just this past year. There was the um, CEO of, 
Oh, I forget that one of the uh, major airlines, uh, Emirates, Emirates, yeah. Emirates, yeah, 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 came out and said that he had yeah. denied climate change. It's only the past couple of days he denied climate change for years, yeah. and kind of he's now kind of a believer. Um, he said that like Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion have done more yeah. for changing the direction mm-hmm. than any government has. Yeah. And that's just because of capturing pe- people's imaginations and actually getting to kind of realize just how much trouble we're in. So people need a voice. And I suppose uh, with Greta and Extinction Rebellion, those are the answers. And when you start mobilizing people and people have the power to vote in elections, changes can be done. Yeah. Why do you think in this day and age, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about people with underlying interests, say, you know, um, like corporations or politicians who benefit from corporations, why do you think ordinary people still don't believe in global warming? Like, there's still quite a lot of them. Do you think they're choosing not to believe? Is there a re- or, or is there a genuine lack of information or what? Denials, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Why, do, you, do you think they're choosing not to believe it or that they're not informed about it? Or why, why is it? Is it agenda-based or are there some people who really, you know? I suppose it's a, it could be a mix. Like an actual dyed-in-the-wool climate science denier like who will argue with you on Twitter or something about it and will pull graphs out of like everywhere that don't make any sense or made to confuse there are people who are actually paid to do that there are people who are funded to to actually do that there's like the heartland institute in the u.s is like a big foundation that tries to put out um, misinformation and has been funded by like the Koch brothers and lots of kind of oil oil and gas industry and i think some of the google have even some of their money has been tracked to the heartland institute so there are those people then there are people like there are people who might be in a farming community in ireland um whose livelihood depends upon them not believing it. And then they look to groups like the IFA, who kind of have a sort of like, yeah, it's kind of happening, but, you know, we still need to increase our our beef production. And they'll water it down and say, like, it's not, we don't have to be that concerned about it. It's not a full engagement with the facts. So there are people who like, you know, what's that expression? You know, it's it's very difficult to get a man to change his opinion to or to believe something when his um, livelihood depends upon him not believing it. So it's like, I think that's absolutely true. And then there's people I think who just, well, maybe they won't be denies, but they just put their head in the sound. They're like, I don't want to know. Yeah, Yeah. 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 there's a lot of people people in that camp, more so I'd say than actual don't believe in Yeah, Yeah, I would say if you see history and how humans behave, uh, we we are working in a cycle until you don't see things uh, in front of your house. Shit is hitting the fan in this case, so then they won't do anything about it and they will deny until that happens. You know? This is the biggest question that I've been building up to. I suppose I wanted to know more about your world before I asked it. I won't deny it. I'm afraid to ask this question because I've been trying to stay away from the specifics myself, but I must. Based on what you've read, presumably the recent report, which is kind of the, the keystone of all this for you, how bad is all this going to be? Can you break down what's going to happen if nothing changes? And how is it going to affect the lives of ordinary people say in this part of the world well it's like you can see some of it happening already I think one of the problems, one of the failings, I think, of the news, for example, like, you know, if you think RTE is actually painting the picture of joining the dots um, between everything. This is happening because this happened. Exactly. Exactly. So we hear about like, you know, migrant crisis, kind of migrant crisis, kind of people are um, heading to Americans' borders and stuff and Trump's building his wall. There are people moving because they can't grow food in places that they've depended upon for generations in areas that they've been able to grow and farm and live off that land and now they can't so they're forced to move so that's why kind of some people are, or there's drought there's increased drought in those areas the drought that's why they can't grow food that's happening in south america that's happening in africa like if you look at the uh, lake chad and you look at how it's just drying up over 
um, the past kind of decades. And the amount of people, it was massive, that depended upon that. And a lot of people who, de- who lived around that area then actually went to Syria. And Syria was dealing with kind of massive droughts as well. And that's where you have then tensions between groups. It's not like the reason that the war in Syria happened, but it's, it, 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 yeah, it's, a, contributing, it's, it's a contributing factor. Yeah. So like you see kind of then from that, then people are starting to come into Europe and it's just people fleeing with their families, their kids, the same way that I would flee if it was happening here. And then that puts kind of attention on the whole European structure and this rise of kind of populist leaders and which threatens kind of the foundations of, of the EU and stuff as well. And then you have the kind of same populist Trump. Like these are all kind of things that are going to continue to happen. We're going to have more people fleeing. We're going to have more places where you can't grow food. Then you have the like movement of disease as well because mosquitoes now are actually starting it getting into areas. Yeah. Like there was first Malaria, native, dengue and yeah. all of that, yeah. There was the first case of Zika in, Zika, in Europe, yeah. Yeah. Um, indigenous Zika yeah. in Europe, kind of recently. Um, it's essentially the natural order is out of sync with how it's always been. Like certain ecosystems are breaking down, certain species of animals are dying, other species are migrating to places they haven't been before, yeah. and therefore certain crops are no longer being able to grow. And you said there's more droughts, more storms. It's kind of yeah. is it just nature being essentially in chaos like that's out of sync with how it's always and balance before yeah. so could you sum it up as being like that yeah yeah it's like a perfect engine then it's not working properly anymore yeah. so and we don't have the right oil to keep going and when species disappear those species had a function in this ecosystem mm-hmm. and then when the ecosystem is in balance mm-hmm. is where we, we start getting the troubles and uh, the funny thing is that we are part of that ecosystem so we are also going into extinction the human beings we probably can survive but uh, won't be many actually and that word then is going to be diminished. Exactly. So and think about in terms of resources as well. You know, if water starts to be limited for people as well, so it's going to be a war out, you know, resources, water or, I don't know, forest, uh, you know, grass, uh, land. Ireland has been lucky actually not to be as much as affected. Well, we are affected by as much as the other countries, but, uh, you know, it could be a war just to to get into Ireland to grow food or perhaps to to have a normal life. So, I mean, we have uh, messed up that... uh, cycle and that ecology then we are required to to survive so you both read about this far more than i have like what are the models of what human society is going to look like if nothing is done if it keeps getting worse that this is what you're talking about preparing your kids for right? okay well like, give us the worst case scenario and, and tell us how likely that is maybe i don't think there are many models of what society is necessarily going to look like mm-hmm. if you google map of the earth four degrees which is what we were predicted to be at by the end of the century right. you'll see that like there's a band around the equator up from like to France that you can and the same kind of distance below where you can't grow food. So all of the people who live in that kind of zone are moving. In Australia, there's only kind of a predicted sort of fertile area on the left-hand corner. There's Greenland becomes a super re-greening of the poles. But then if you think there's some kind of relief in that, it's like that soil is not developed to actually grow food, not fertile soil. Ireland is green on the map, but then you look at North America and North America isn't. So it's North America's ability to grow food is under serious threat. So when you think of that in kind of geopolitical terms, if you think Trump, for example, or some other populist leader is going to lose the ability to feed his population and they have all the weapons and guns, what are they going to do? So you start answering those questions, then it becomes all the more kind of concerning that like if, if we think we're, oh, well, you know, Ireland will be okay. And um, if we can grow food here, do we have any ability to actually defend that? And then that's one map. There's the Gulf Stream, which is slowing down. And if that happens, then we could be covered nice. 
Okay. And that could happen within the space of 10 years. That was and Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, I think, was one of the kind of facts that I remember. But that was like when you have the northern polar ice caps like kind of uh, melt and mm. the I think the sea level raises to the point that the yeah. Great Lakes of North America, there was an influx of cold water that actually kind of brought the Gulf Stream to a halt at that time and, and within 10 years. Um, so it's, it's happened mm. before. Um, yeah, but that's is, extreme. That's, yeah, that's extreme as well. Well, I suppose um, maybe to work from the extreme is useful. Working models and numbers and statistics are very helpful, like what you said. I think that's something I don't do it most people don't do it we see it in the far future and we we see the idea of a civilization broken down but we don't see it step by step like you said the wealthy countries that we're aware of in the world today are going to react as they always do they're going to start invading other countries the step-by-step process and that's kind of a very terrifying but very important way of looking at it yeah so water will start you know claiming land as well a lot of countries like bangladesh is going to be affected the maldives i think they will disappear mm. completely diseases will also increase uh, you know all over the place so it's, it's it's very blink you know when you see a picture uh, like that and then we need to start thinking about adaptation mm-hmm. you know to all those changes and, and food as well yeah and then when you think as well like it's it's the the space on the planet in which we can actually survive is going to shrink yeah. massively and the people who live there are going to move into the areas where there's still that you could still live. Yeah. And then when you have those people meet the people who are there already, what happens? And then it's like, who do we want to be then? If anyone has any sort of consolation or consoling themselves that, oh, well, Ireland's okay. It's not going to be okay. Because even if our weather stays kind of, which it won't, we've had two hurricanes now, like in the, in the past two years. One which has kind of passed us and one, this one recently just like just missed us. And the worst snowstorm in the, in 40 years. Yeah. And two summer droughts in yeah. a few months. And, and, yeah. and the reason that those hurricanes got to us is because the Atlantic is warmer and they, they travel further over warmer. As the, as the warmer it gets, the more powerful those storms are going to be when they actually hit us. When we have a storm like that and the flooding is actually, it's when the tide is in, then that's kind of when we have some serious damage as well. We've been lucky so far. So but it's only luck. Yeah, but this is all the really depressing, horrible stuff. There is still time to turn this around if we actually get up off our arses and do something now. Yeah. On that exactly, and that's the fi- this is the final question. I'm aware the time is fairly short. I've heard the number of 12 years. And we've talked a little bit about what the ordinary person has to do, but that ultimately a lot of it comes down to corporate responsibility and our attitude towards controlling and holding corporations accountable. What do we need to do in terms of specifics? And what will a redesigned society look like? A redesigned, sustainable society? Is it going to be radically different? Like, is everybody going to have to revert to some kind of agricultural background? Will it be possible to still live in some semblance of a city as we're living in now? Let's take it with small steps first. Like, what can people do now on a practical level? And what will the resulting society potentially look like at the end of that? Uh, Yeah, well, I think people are becoming more conscious, uh, uh, you know, not just in terms of food, but also where they're going to live in. So if uh, they have a more sustainable house, that will help them, you know, greatly and and not just some painless bills and so on. Eco-friendly Energy saving and so on. So the future that will remain, you know, as part of uh, the society itself. So there's no there's no way that we can go back to to have uh, bad structures that damage the, the environment itself. And I suppose you, you have to get um, companies accountable on that. So more laws and policies are going to be in place. People will vote for parties that actually are the champion climate change. 
it's fortunately, even with, with doom and gloom, that is definitely becoming an issue. I mean, every politician, mm. whether they mean it or not, has to at least address the kind yeah. of issue. Now. They can't ignore it unless they're outright denying it. Yeah, that's it. So then when you start, you know, from those aspects of the government, when you have the power on the, on the vote, and we are conscious of that, and we impose also policies on, on, on corporations. So it's when the industry starts changing, when the industry needs to start finding, you know, technology that allows it to have more or less what we have uh, in a more sustainable way. How do we do it? Well, an extension rebellion, we just go and try to uh, address it through protests, non-violent protests, and put it out there so people can do the switch and reflect that in elections. Uh, but uh, I think in the future it's going to be tougher, or we have to become a bit more radical, non-violent radical, that's what I meant, and, and make those changes that are required for a sustainable society. You know, I think the like, first thing people should understand is that this analogy I've been using recently, like if you're boiling a pot of water for some spots or something and you put it on the, the stove and you slap the heat up the top, it takes a little while for the water to actually start bubbling. That's the situation we're in right now. There's a catastrophic amount of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases in our atmosphere right now. And we've effectively turned the, the switch right up to the top. Yeah. So we're in this period where it's starting to heat up and we need to turn the switch down mm-hmm. immediately or as quick as humanly possible. So we have so little time to do that now, it's an emergency. So we actually have to be thinking about radical changes. And that means that we have to get, a lot of people have to actually get out and demand a lot of the things that we need to do for free. So we need to actually have like, we need our houses retrofitted as quickly as possible for free. We need to have transport free. We need free public, good good free public transport to get people out of cars where they can actually get to work and get do the things that they have to do for free because it will encourage them actually to use it instead of using the actual yeah. car. We need to support farmers to transition to a, a sustainable form of agriculture and we need to make them actually have a living that is better than kind of struggling from morning to night to actually you know be a beef farmer for example. So like we ne- we need to do all of these things and people think oh like you know this is just another sort of backdoor some people say just another backdoor for socialism. I'm not a died in the wool socialist like it's kind of like I would never have called myself a so but, but it is just these are the things that we have to do and in the space of time that we have to do them if we're relying on people saving up enough money to get it done then it is it's not going to work the old fashioned way it's not going to work now I'm open to mechanisms of whatever if there's a massive kind of loans from the government that you pay back over the course of your lifetime or whatever there's suggestions with um, retrofitting houses that you pay for it, it um, the government pays for it and then when you sell the house it comes out of the actual like that we can, we can all talk about stuff like that those solutions are kind of very much on the table if we sort stuff out our food will be seasonal it will be local it won't be shipped halfway across the world and have a massive carbon footprint by the time it arrives at a door it will come from the farm down the road from the farmer who's supported by your business and who's not trying to sell en masse for pittance to um, big supermarket chains or anything it will be sold kind of in that kind of situation. The farmer will be able to have a sustainable sort of living from that. We will have zero carbon houses, like passive houses that don't require a lot of energy to actually heat them. And we will be going to to and from work on, like there's loads of different things that we can do. But say on a practical level, see how this could work. Because everything is possible with the will to do it. Like nothing there is impossible from mm. front. But what you need essentially is governments to start incentivizing people 
to change to new careers, which they will be supported in because these careers at the moment might not be profitable in the, the marketplace. Governments have to be willing to support people to do that. Yeah, Retrain people well, to do useful, essential things. Yeah, absolutely. So careers for the future. But yeah. at the same time, right now, you know, there may be careers that won't exist in the future, but at the same time, the government should allow you know, to have the people the time transition you know, to reta- periods, transition yeah. periods yeah, to yeah, do yeah. that, you know. So, um, and those careers you're talking about, they're not radical. They're like bus drivers and... Yeah. Farmers, which are very old professions, and the retrofitting thing is obviously something related to some kind of construction work. I mean, it's not rocket science to retrain and rejig this a little bit to try and people do these things. That's sure. it, about activism as well. Yeah. You can probably don't see it as a, as a career, but uh, yeah. if you have the time actually to be active in human rights or climate change or anything that you know will help this world to be a better world as well, you know, encourage that. And the thing about the economy as well is that we are seeing it all based on GDP. Yes. And then if we need to do this the changes that we are talking right now we need to stop actually thinking about GDP and we know that the economy is going to slow down but it's going to slow down to, to survive in the a future sustainable a sustainable way, way. So, so we need to stop somehow and if you know money needs to be spent you know, to grow the economy well but probably we have to put that money on transport uh, free transport you know to put more GDP there so then people have the alternative actually to go to places right now and we have the environment so then we survive in the future are there any countries you think are doing well at this at the moment or making strides in this Costa Rica Costa Rica is really yeah. Yeah. yeah Costa Rica yeah. but they have uh, plans since 30 years uh, you know in terms of sustainability mm-hmm. and environment so that is why they can reach those points what other country mm-hmm. northern countries um, Sweden and I think the Scandinavian countries have been doing better at it yeah. but they're still kind of they're not perfect like there's no kind of easy answer there's no quick kind of fix. It's like we will have to learn as we go. But it's kind of like I think identifying the low-hanging fruit. What to put in the most greenhouse gases up there at the moment, and how do we get that out of the system? Like it's all about reducing. Stop putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as quickly as possible, and find ways to get them out as quickly as possible. We're 16% over what is considered safe levels. The heat is turned up, and we we have to react quickly. And it could be as little as a decade, possibly even less. So we have to go as fast as we possibly can with this. Businesses then that will suffer, like peat workers, they need to be retrained. Where possible, they need to be retrained into the businesses like retrofitting homes, peat bog restoration. When they're dried up, are massive emitters of methane and we need to re-wet them and have them cared for. Like, that's a profession. There are people who can be paid to do those things. And these things are not a million miles away from what the people are doing now. Yeah, possibly. I suppose if you work in peat bog, then to switch to retrofitting, that that could maybe be a like, and especially if somebody's older, it might be more difficult for them to actually start out. In Fair a enough. Career. But keeping it simpler, say like to move from conventional farming to sustainable farming is not a million miles of jump. I'm sure. Like I think there's, it's maybe more of a mental jump than it is of a, a physical jump. But I'm not a farmer, so I don't know. I think farmers tend to be, if they're a beef farmer, they've been beef farmers, their fathers were beef farmers, they've kind of, you know, it's been in the family generations and it's kind of like their big part of their personal identity sometimes with being a beef farmer. But, you know, you could still kind of move most of your farm to something more sustainable while still having some beef on the actual farm. So like farms that kind of actually protect our biodiversity and kind of reduce our carbon footprint. There is the old saying that attitudes are the hardest thing to change, but based on what you've seen with the I found rather surprising openness that so many people have towards Extinction Rebellion, does that hearten you a bit to think that people are more willing to change their attitudes on this thing? 
Yeah, I mean, the experience that I have is that uh, people feel a bit kind of scared at the beginning because they don't know what to find out, you know, and uh, there's a lot of people also join. So there's a bit of process just to digest a lot of information as well. But once they are in somehow in the process and the willingness to do something mm-hmm. and then uh, we all become a family of friends and so on, it's easier. So the people start changing the way how they see things. And then surprisingly, they bring more more friends with them, you know, or they, they, their families actually get involved somehow. It's not just the guys or the rebels, we call rebels, the of Extinction Rebellion is the all people all around us that actually helping us and supporting us, you know, because uh, we wouldn't be here, you know, if, for example, you know, your family both, you know, will support you or myself as well, my family or friends. So, yeah. I think one of the biggest problems, like I work in communications as a background, and one of the biggest problems is the lack of communication from the government yeah. on this. I think if everyone was told just straight out, right, this is the situation we're facing. This is the science. This is how much time we actually have to do it. Then people would mobilize. You know, it's it's like when they declared a climate emergency and we should be on a wartime footing. If there were bombs dropping around us, we'd all be reacting. We'd all be running to do whatever needed to be done in order to survive. But the current situation is that really the bombs have been launched and they're on the way. They just haven't started dropping around us yet. So now we have to actually kind of respond to stop them. But they're coming and they'll be here soon. Paul and Manuel, thank you for doing your best to try and catch the boss. <laughs> thank you very much. You're very welcome. Lovely. Awesome. Thank, thank you for being here with me today. No worries.